This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. Busy day as always. We're going to talk later about splitting California into two different states, which for the record, I'm all in on. I'm I'm totally in favor of this. This is different than uh, having California leave the country and and turn into its own different, distinct, separate country. I'm not for that. But for splitting California into two different states, I'm all in. And I'll explain why coming up. The only reason I'm against it is I don't know what uh, the flag would look like with 51 stars. That doesn't, it wouldn't even, feel kind of weird. So I don't know how he's figured that. But I think we we can figure that one out if we need to. So we'll talk about that. Uh, I got an incredible story about lobotomies and hookworm, which I promise will all relate to politics today. So we'll do all that coming up. Miss L, do we have uh, 1426 or or not? It's it's cool if we don't. We do have it. Oh, perfect. Look at this. What uh, I can't think of a better way to start off today's show than with uh, a little video I saw the other day. Hit it. Come on, let me show you something. That's all right, I can stop time. Don't worry about time, put your foot right here. Okay. You get the free shoe shine, I do this for everybody. I just thought you looked like an interesting person. So you know, I'm not so interesting, I'm just a shoe shine man. See? No one's shoe shine man. My name is Larry Woods, and they call me Mr. Sunshine. My man, come on, put that foot right here. Shining shoes is how I connect with people to sell my product, beeswax. Never in a thousand years did I think I'd become a shoeshine man. Back in the 80s, I was made. The mansion, the chauffeur, the Rolls Royce, Don Perry on every night. My head was stuck up so high I thought everybody had to jump to whatever I said. It happened in a fruit shop. My head was thumping from a hangover, and it pissed me off. Every time I threw something on the counter, the old Chinese man, he'd say, thank you. 
When I turn to leave and I see the Rolls Royce, it hits me. I could see by the way he was just how much I had lost myself. That right there was the start of something, changing me. Some people might think I'm like this now because I lost all my money. The way I see it, money don't make you happy. It just gives you a better quality of unhappiness. I've made bad decisions. I've hurt people. Some things I could never take back. Every morning I wake up, I just try to be better and live up to my creed. If there's any good that I can do or any kindness I can show, let me do this now or I shall not pass this way again. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to say one thing before I go. Everybody wants to be somebody. But remember, be somebody that's nice. Thank you. How cool would it be if everywhere you walked around, that beat was playing behind you? Like someone just, someone just carried a, a boombox behind you. You walk down the street to that beat. Uh, I love that money doesn't make you happy. It just gives you a better quality of unhappiness. So there you got a millionaire who realized he was unhappy and, and a terrible person. Just gave it up. Shine shoes. Gets to be with people throughout the day, brighten other people's days. It's a pretty good life. Better than the person who makes people's days worse, which is what he was. I just thought that was a good tone to set for the start of the show. All right, I want to play uh, a quick clip here of an interview I did the other day on my local show in San Diego with the owner founder of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. So the Surgery Center of Oklahoma is an incredible group. Check out their website. They are in the free market of medicine. So these guys, these used to, they used to work at the hospital. Um, they're highest quality. They're, they're the surgery guys uh, for everyone. I mean, you, you can go. Uh, but they also do all the surgery for the Oklahoma City Thunder NBA team. So they're as high quality as you can get. And all their prices are online. So you go to their website, and if you need a hip replacement or a knee replacement or any type of surgery, it has a list of the prices. And they are a tenth, a tenth of what they charge at the hospital. Do you, Listen, last time you got something done at the hospital, do you have any idea what it cost? No. Surgery or, or medicine, healthcare is the one thing in our economy that we have no idea what it costs until after you get it done. Right, Nancy Pelosi, the healthcare bill. Nancy Pelosi, remember, she said you got to pass it to find out what's in it. With surgery and every other hospital stay, you got to have surgery to find out how much it costs. So obviously the prices are going to go up when that happens. So the Surgery Center of Oklahoma said, well, hold on, we're just going to post our prices online. It's a tenth of what they charge at the hospital. And you know what the effect has been? Prices drop at all the hospitals around town. But I asked uh, Dr. Smith there, I said, well, hold on, why? What? Why, why is it? Why do we not know what things cost and why are prices going up so high and how can you offer them for so cheap? Here's what he said. Take this in and I want to let me know if you've ever heard this before in your entire life. I haven't. Here it is.
insurance companies really don't care how much the medical care costs. They're in the business of selling discounts. If medical care costs more than the insurance company would like, they just raise premiums the next year. So that that sounds totally counterintuitive. You would think, okay, they collect premiums, they pay claims, and the difference is what they keep. It's more complicated. What they do is they take a $100,000 bill from a hospital, they discount it down to some amount, let's say $20,000, and then they ride into the office of the employer group that bought that policy and says, you know – We just rode in our white horse, saved you $80,000, and per the terms of our agreement, we are due some of that savings, some percentage of that savings. It's usually 20 30%. So when you think through that, you realize the insurance companies don't want a $3,740 bill for a knee arthroscopy on my website. What they really want is a $50,000 bill so that they can – maximize their revenue from this shared savings scam. Yeah, that's exactly why. And they don't they don't want anything to do with my fair prices because it denies them that opportunity. So 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 they want the fifty thousand dollar bill. So I'm just gonna repeat this so I get this right. They want the fifty thousand dollar bill from the hospital so they can go to the workplace and say, we talked the bill down to three thousand. Aren't we great? But yes. you're going to have to pay for, well, let's see, we saved you forty grand, so I don't know, why don't you pay us 10000 Yes, they pay, so they ask to be paid, and they contract to be paid for that discounting service, and that's where they make a lot of their money. And you think, well, these poor hospitals, no. The hospital, <laughs> throw, the hospital throws this $100,000 bill out partly because they started at 50000 but the insurance company said, can you do a brother a favor and make it 100000 Then the hospital throws out this meaningless $100,000 bill, glad to accept 20000 mm. To make it even simpler, simpler, let's say they charge $100 for an aspirin. That's not uncommon, by the way. And the insurance company pays $5. Well, the hospital says we've lost $95. Never mind, they paid a penny for the aspirin or less. But the hospital will claim that they lost $95 when they really didn't, and all that red ink helps them maintain the fiction of their not-for-profit status. Wow. And so they don't pay tax through this scam, but even worse, they add up all of these losses, call it uncompensated care, kick that to Washington, D.C., and then they get a kickback to the extent that they claim these losses. So it's like a reverse Enron where Enron said they actually increased their revenue by overstating their gains. The hospitals make more money by overstating their losses. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? Have you ever heard that? So the economy is all about incentives. The, the natural incentive in a free market is to provide better service than the other guy for a lower price, right? That's, that's the natural incentive. Better service, lower price. But the incentives that, have, that now exist after 100 years of government involvement in hospitals and health insurance and healthcare, the natural incentives now are for the hospitals to charge prices that have nothing to do with reality, which benefits them because then the insurance companies come in and say, oh, we're only going to pay this much, which is still way more than it actually costs. 
the hospitals can go, oh, look how wonderful we are for giving away and losing all this money uh, in order to, to help out these people. And the insurance companies come in and they say, uh, they go to the employers and say, well, look how much money we discounted the price of this health care. You have to pay us 20% of whatever we saved you. Meanwhile, as the doctor said, the hospital charged $100 for an aspirin. The insurance company discounted it to five, but it really cost a penny. So like, what? This is why, and I, I talked to a friend who's super progressive, and he went to, or it was a friend, I think, who got in a car accident in Mexico and went to the, uh, had to go to the hospital for two days. And they were going to give him the bill. And he's like, oh, geez, I don't have insurance here in Mexico. This is going to be so much money. I'm ruined. And the bill was like 180 bucks. And he's like, wait a second. I was here for two days. How can it be $100? Well, that's what it would cost in America if we didn't have this scam of a system that we currently have today. Now, he comes back to America and is now an advocate for socialized medicine. Government. Uh, lowering prices. But no, it's the government is the reason why the prices are so high in the first place. Government is the poison. Government was the problem. Government is why it's so screwed up right now. Otherwise, it would cost 100 bucks a night in the hospital. Because that's what it actually costs when you don't have the incentive of the hospitals and the insurance companies to jack up the prices artificially. Amazing. The reason why it costs so much is because of government. And this is why the uh, Obamacare failed, but also why the, the uh, Republicans replacement bill failed, because it's just more government or at least different government. But we need to not only repeal Obamacare, as we said last week, and as we said five years ago, we got to repeal and then repeal and then repeal and then keep repealing 100 years of government mandates and control in the healthcare field. It's not repeal and replace. It's repeal and repeal and repeal and repeal and repeal. And that's why Obamacare Light wasn't even close. I'll give you another example of this next. We've got to take a break. The 1-888-933-93. Slater Radio on Twitter. And please search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook and, uh, and friend us there. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. This is Mike Slater. I look forward to hearing about Chris Cruz's girl stay at the spa too. Uh, I hope that last clip there, please share that with, with people. Cause I don't know. I, I've never heard that my whole life and I've never heard any Republican talk about that either. And that's why I'm so frustrated. So I'm so frustrated. Do not get trapped into this replace or repeal and replace game. Do not. It is repeal and repeal and repeal. I'm so frustrated at the Republicans in, in Congress for not explaining this to the American people, for not simply getting up there just like that doctor did or having the doctor giving him a platform to get up there and expose the true story of what's going on with our hospitals and insurance companies. How can that possibly be? 
you know, Paul Ryan got up there and said, you know, we're the opposition party. Now we're the governing party. And there's a lot of growing pains in that transition. Give me a break. Even when you were the opposition party, you never explained the, the, the root of why prices are going up so high. And it's really not that hard. You know, a week or so ago, we talked about the, con- the bill from uh, the congressman, I think from Alabama, Brooks, who had the one sentence Obamacare repeal bill. One sentence. Obviously one page. It was one sentence long. It's not that hard. It's really not that hard to do this. Everyone's making it way, way, way too complicated. It's like the scene in uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, you know, when Indiana runs out and, and uh, there's that master swordsman there and the swords guy's like, he's spinning around, throwing the, and Indiana Jones is just standing there and he pulls out his gun, shoots him, and then just keeps running. Like that's, like, that's how it's got to be. By the way, you know, the, the behind the scenes of that scene, uh, hilarious they, they were filming in tunisia and the original script had indiana doing this epic uh duel with with the swordsman guy right like indiana had his whip and this guy had his sword and it was gonna be a whole thing but harrison ford had dysentery and uh well he, he couldn't couldn't really be away from his trailer for for more than like 10 minutes because he uh had to had to go back frequently. So the night before they were supposed to film, they did a rehearsal and they sat, they figured it was going to take three days to film this scene. And this was the last scene they were going to film before they were going back to England. So Spielberg and, and Ford are talking. And Harrison Ford says, you know, I just had this fight with a group of guys in the scene before this. It's a bit redundant. Why don't I just shoot the son of a gun? And Steven Spielberg was like, okay. So the British stuntman, who's the swords guy, he's been practicing the scene for months, and then they finally get to film it, and Indiana Jones pulls out his gun and shoots the guy. It takes five minutes, and then they all get on a plane and go back to England. I think that's the perfect metaphor for Obamacare. Obamacare's the swordsman. And it just seems like it's impossible to, to beat it back legislatively. There's no way we can unwind it from our lives. It's too intertwined in our existence. We need three phases. And maybe even four or five phases. Give me a, just shoot the son of a gun. It's a one sentence bill. Done. It's repealed. That's it. What are we doing? Why are we making it so complicated? It's not. Because the truth is those Republicans, many of them don't even really want to repeal it. Because the insurance companies certainly don't want to repeal it. So frustrating. That uh, Indiana Jones scene, it's really just the Gordian knot. You may have heard of that before. Long story short, it's uh, King Midas. He tied his oxen cart to a pole with this super complex knot, right? like this giant ball of rope. Right? You know, like Chris, you know, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation when they get the lights out of the garage and this is a giant knot, right? We've all been there. Uh, so that's this giant knot. It was an oxen cart tied to the pole. And the, the, the legend was anyone who could loosen the knot would rule over all of Asia. So Alexander the Great rolls into town and obviously... He hears about this and he's like, oh, okay, I'm going to undo the knot. No problem. So he tries and he tries, tries to loosen it. Uh, he tries to you know, pull it. He basically does what you do when you try to put your Apple headphones on. You know, when you take your Apple headphones out of your pocket and it's like, how did that even turn into such a knot? And you, like, first you start slow and then you're like, you're, you're shaking really fast. And then you kind of get back to doing it eventually. So he couldn't do it. He couldn't get it. Everyone's like, oh. So he takes a step back and he says, well, it makes no difference how they are loosened. And he takes out his sword and whoosh, slices them right in half. Done. Not, not untied. 
It, it's a pet peeve. And then he ruled over all of Asia. Pet peeve of mine when people make things too complicated. And you've been there when you're in a meeting and there's like something super simple that gets proposed. And everyone's like, oh, like maybe in a couple of years we can do this. And who does, who's going to be? And it's like, what are you doing? Just do it. Now, I know I, I err too, too far on the side of get things done as simply as possible. And some things are a bit more complicated than maybe I want them to be. But it doesn't have to be that much more complicated. Right? Why does it have to be more than a one-sentence bill? First things first, just get rid of Obamacare. Done. That's it. Take the knife out. Cut in half. And then don't stop. Just keep going. Until we get back to a system that actually makes sense. And you want to know when? You want to know a good sign for when the system will make sense? You want to know a good sign? When people know what healthcare costs. That'll be a good sign. When you actually know what healthcare costs, that's a good sign that we're getting back to a free market in healthcare. Until then, nothing will change. If you don't know the price of a thing, of course the prices are going to keep going up and up and up. Someone's making money and someone's paying for it. You're the one paying for it. Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show on Facebook. 1-800-188-933-93. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Mike Slater. Slater, you said I want to play this clip here, and all right, we'll bring this into a story that Glenn talked about the other day. I heard Glenn talking about this, and I was like, "Oh, I." This reminds me of something. So this is a, a New York Times video. It's 15 minutes long. Can't play the whole thing, obviously, but I just took out a little bit here and there uh, that I think you get the idea. The article is called The Unrealized Horrors of Population Explosion, meaning the, the population explosion was a big fear, but it never happened, right? The Unrealized Horrors of Population Explosion. Um, the video starts off with Paul Yerlich today. So this is Paul Yerlich, like as a 70-year-old man, still making the same claims he made in the 70s. So the first clip is of him today. And then every time you hear him, it's back when he was, um, you know, on the, on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and stuff like that. Okay, enjoy. Ehrlich laid out his hypothesis in a slim volume called The Population Bomb. It was a call to action for many, including a student Ehrlich advised, Stuart Brand. There's too many people, and we'd like to see people have fewer children and better ones. The whole idea that people make more people who make more people until there's too many people, and by then it's too late, that's a very persuasive argument. Adrienne Germain, a young women's health advocate, found herself drawn to Ehrlich as well, due to his support of birth control. The message was that we were already in a crisis, and if we didn't have urgent and immediate action, the world would simply destroy itself. Look at what the year 2000 will be. Our cities are going to be choked with this people. Nixon. They're going to be choked with traffic. They're going to be choked with crime. When gloom looked real. Net world population is increasing by 23 people every 10 seconds. It's clear that world population growth remains completely out of control. I bought it totally. Many of my friends bought it totally. 
I organized an event for 60 people to starve in public. What are you trying to prove? Um, it's about pain in the world. Maybe anybody who's thinking of having a third child ought to go hungry a week. The mode became, don't have kids. There's enough of them in the world. And if your friends have kids, it's fine if they feel uncomfortable about that. We had formed an organization called Zero Population Growth. And then Johnny took me on The Tonight Show. Would you welcome Dr. Paul Ehrlich? You have to get the death rate and birth rate in balance. And there's only two ways to do it. One is to bring the birth rate down. The other is to push the death rate up. I did the show maybe 20 times. And we went from six chapters and 600 members to 600 chapters and 60,000 members. Ehrlich's views on how to bring the birth rate down were concrete. Compulsion if voluntary methods fail creating a blacklist of people, companies, and organizations impeding population control in the U.S., responsibility prizes for childless marriages, a tax on children, and a luxury tax on diapers and cribs. The concerns about population became misanthropic, and it was taken with so much seriousness that Paul Ehrlich could recommend things like putting stuff in public water that would make people not as fertile. Panic is not too strong a word to use for some of the advocates that I referred to as true believers. It was a, a zeitgeist that was taking shape. Amazing. Uh, again, that's part of a 15-minute documentary. We could go on. I think you get the idea. Um, Two quick notes. Walter Cronkite, you heard there, he said the, the population of the world is out of control. At the time, it was 3.6 billion. Now it's 7.5 billion. And how about that guy in there who said, uh, you know, we need uh, fewer children and better ones. Now, that was in the 70s. What else happened in the 70s? It's a big question. A lot of things happened in the 70s later. Uh, whatever what happened in the 70s was somewhat related to this. Roe v. Wade. Underlying the entire debate about abortion was the idea that there were already too many people on the planet and therefore we are all going to die. As Ehrlich said, there are two ways to control population. Increase the death rate or decrease the birth rate. Okay, so we're going to decrease the birth rate. We can do that a bunch of different ways, as he talked about, maybe putting something in the water that makes people infertile, right? So we're going to do different things to decrease the birth rate. But when it comes to increasing the death rate, I mean, we could kill old people, but it's a lot easier to kill babies before they're born than it is to kill people who are already born. You're saying, whoa, so that's, that's an, taking a leap here. Well, got a quote here from Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court, Supreme Court Justice. She said in 2009, she said, I was surprised that the court went as far as it did in Roe v. Wade. And I did think that the Medicaid reimbursement cases down the road, uh, that perhaps the court was thinking it did not want more women. Excuse me. It did want more women to have access to reproductive choice. Okay, what is reproductive choice? Reproductive choice means abortion. Okay. So the court was thinking it did want more women to have access to abortion. At the time, there was a concern about too many people inhabiting our planet. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Court Justice, says there was an organization called Zero Population Growth. In the press, there were articles about the danger of crowding our planet. So there was, at the time of Roe v. Wade, considerable concern about overpopulation.
Now, I, I am not going to suggest that Ginsburg or any of the justices decided on Roe v. Wade specifically and solely because of population growth. But nationwide, that was a serious movement of people who, of course, also supported abortion. It was, and at the end of that clip, you heard one of the guys say it was the zeitgeist, right? Zeitgeist is like the culture. This is in, it's in the air, right? It was the culture of the era that there's too many people on the planet. Well, what's a good way to resolve that? Well, more abortion. And what else does abortion do? Well, you're going to have fewer kids, but also because most of the people who have abortion are going to be poor people and, and minority people, you're going to have not only fewer kids, but better ones, like that guy just said. One of the justices who decided, Blackman, in Roe v. Wade, he said, in addition, this is, this is actually in the Roe v. Wade decision. He said, quote, in addition, population growth, pollution, poverty, and racial overtones tend to complicate and not to simplify the problem. So here we are. Population growth was a concern back then, a serious concern. Now, you remember last week, maybe it was two weeks ago, we talked about how there's no such thing as different races. There's only scientifically, biologically, anthropologically, there's only one human race. There's one race. There's no, there's no different races. The concept of race came from 18th century scientists who measured the volume of skulls. And they, they determined that the skulls of white people were bigger, which means that white people have bigger brains, which means, for, means there, which means therefore that white people are smarter than black people and now morally can enslave them. Okay? That was the science of race that today's discussion of race is based on. So when people talk about race today, and the different races and how even if it's like in a nice way, like, oh, well, we have to transcend our differences. What differences? Well, our racial differences. No, there is no such thing as different races. We're all one. The science that you're basing that on is filling skulls with mustard seeds and measuring them and then determining which had a bigger brain. Like that is so stupid. That is so stupid. But that's the science that we base a race off of today. Which is why I say stop even thinking along those lines. That, that, that's, that's a broken foundation. Bad science, to say the least. So stop talking about races as if there are, diff- there are different races. There's not. There's just one. I don't know why anyone would want to be associated with that. Similarly, many people who support abortion today are motivated, mm, influenced by the eugenicists of 40, 50 years ago. The people who said, wow, there's too many people on the planet and there's the wrong kind of people, which of course is what Margaret Sanger thought. And she is the founder of Planned Parenthood. That was her motivation for increasing abortion all along. So if you support this, that's who you're a part of. That's the group you're a part of. Whether you like it or not, you both have the same goal in mind. 1-888-933-93. I got to take a break. I want to tell you what what, uh, they're doing in California uh, about this next. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater. 
So we've talked before, of course, how the media is uh, hysterical against uh, Trump. And as we, as we predicted before Trump won, we said if he wins, uh, when he wins, you will see a more vigilant press than any time ever in your life. Right? Every, all the journalists will suddenly remember how to investigate and, and ask tough questions and undercover reporting and all that. And you're going to see so many reports about how much presidential vacations cost. And, and uh, uh, there's going to be people on TV keeping track of how many times President Trump goes on golf outings all of a sudden again, right? <laughs> so all these journalism techniques will suddenly rush back to these journalists who have taken the last eight years off. Uh, that being said, they failed their first big test. As T. Beckett Adams said, uh, news that the California Attorney General was going to pursue felony charges against two people who went undercover to expose Planned Parenthood selling body parts. That was met by the press with a mixture of yawns and giggles. You remember this story, right? These two guys did undercover videos of uh, people who work at Planned Parenthood. And and these people worked, talked about how uh, the abortion uh, process works and how much they get compensated for different body parts and all this stuff. You, you, you get that. You remember. So... It's against the law in California to record someone without their knowledge if privacy, uh, if there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. So the new California attorney general, I'll get to this in a second, why he's new, but the new California attorney general uh, is pursuing 15 felony charges against these two guys. And obviously many years in prison. Now, a lot of people and I have been calling this selective prosecution. Why? There's a group called Mercy for Animals. And they frequently, but most recently, went to a poultry slaughterhouse in 2015, undercover videoed it, and released a long video about all the abuse that was happening there to chickens. And in response, the New York Times wrote a long editorial talking about how there are too many laws limiting undercover journalism. And the New York Times made the argument that these laws are a violation of journalists' civil liberties. You following that? You got that, right? So the New York Times says these laws against undercover journalism, against undercover footage, violate their civil liberties. Not the people who they're recording, but the people doing the recording. It violates their civil liberties. So here we are two years later. I guess it was really around the same time, like a year later. We have those same laws, which the New York Times was against, those same laws being used against undercover journalists against Planned Parenthood. And now they're getting the book thrown at them with 15 felony charges. Two political, two corrupt politicians involved in this. First, you have Kamala Harris. She was the attorney general in California. Now she's California's U.S. senator. I don't have time to go into this, but we have emails. We have the emails sent between her office and Planned Parenthood about a bill called AB 1671, which was written in response to these undercover videos, which makes it a crime to secretly record video footage of healthcare providers. And Planned Parenthood wrote this bill and sent it to the attorney general to make sure that these videos never happen again. Kamala Harris ran for U.S. Senate. She received $40,000 from pro-abortion lobbying groups in her campaign. The current attorney general who took her, her place, Javier Becerra, he... Uh, is the guy who's currently filing the four, the 15 felony charges. He's been a congressman for the last 20-something years, almost 30 years. He's received, of course, thousands of dollars in, abor- in uh, uh, money from uh, abortion uh, 
clinics and Planned Parenthood and, and, and lobbying groups. So we have these two big abortion people going out of their way to do Planned Parenthood's bidding, whether legislatively or in the courts, because they expose the truth about what Planned Parenthood is doing. And they're the same people who did nothing and I'm sure celebrated when Mercy for Animals did the same thing when they exposed abuse to chickens. But when we show abuse of humans, oh, we can't have that. So, Glenn mentioned this the other day. He used the word martyr, and I agree. I think uh, if I, and it's easy for me to say, but if I were one of the two guys who did this, I think you, you it's outrageous that you're being charged like this. But And I, they may not even, uh, they may win. Right? These two guys might win. I don't think the state even has a good case against them. Long story, but there was a, another Supreme Court case uh, where Dateline did an undercover video of two guys who ran this 1-800 number and were scamming people. And they did an undercover video, put it on Dateline. The 1-800 people sued them. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Dateline when they said, listen, they recorded these two guys at a restaurant. You have no reasonable expectation of privacy at a restaurant because these 1-800 guys are talking and a waiter comes to the table and the guys didn't stop talking or whisper their voices. Like you're at a restaurant. And a lot of these videos from the Planned Parenthood guys were just in a restaurant too. So you don't even have a reasonable expectation of privacy there. So these two guys might win. Even if they don't, whatever you're getting in trouble for, you did it for righteous reasons. And I think you face the earthly penalty for what you did. Um, But that doesn't mean you shouldn't have done it. And I'm glad they did. I guarantee they changed a lot of lives and changed a lot of hearts and minds with what they did. And that makes it worth it. 1-888-900-3393. And uh, search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Join us there. I got a really great story about uh, how there's no such thing as race coming up next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. So, uh, I think two, I, I, for some reason, I think it was two weeks ago. Maybe it was last week. We talked about race and how there's no such thing as races. There's no such thing as two different races. There's only one human race, biologically, scientifically, anthropologically. There's only one thing, there's only one race. Um, so I talked, we've been talking a lot about it on my local show. And the other day I got two phone calls, which has led me to conclude that there are three different perspectives about the conversation, about the statement I just made, that there's only one race. Oh, just for context, there's three different races of chimpanzees. I should note that. Um, so one group of chimpanzees, if you trace their lineage back to a common set of parents, there's one they're they're from one location another set of chimpanzees if you trace back their lineage they have a completely different distinct set of parents and then there's another group of chimpanzees if you trace back their lineage uh there's another distinct group and set of parents so three different races so all any type of chimpanzee came from one of these three different sets of parents but for humans 
and this isn't, I'm not, I'm not quoting Genesis here. I'm quoting what we know of science. Uh, if all humans can lineage back to the same set of parents as one race. Um, that's what a race is. So three different reactions to that. Um, Hmm, which would I start with? Um, I think you, so I, I got a call from someone, Dan, his name is Dan. Dan believes there are different races, but we all need to love each other and we need to transcend our differences and focus on what we have in common. Right? You're of one race, the black race, I'm of the white race. Um, and the idea is truly that, again, we come from different sets of parents, which is not, not true. But Dan, but Dan thinks it is. So it's a, so, but, but you know what? We got to be nice to each other. We have to look at what we have in common. Okay. All right. I, I think that's been the prevalent view the last couple of decades. I don't think that's good enough. No, no I should, now let me say this. I'm sorry. I should have done the other way. I, I screwed up. You have, I got a call from Jim. Jim is, there are different races and one is superior to all the others, right? That was Jim's take, right? So that, that's perspective number one. There are different races and one is superior. Then you have Dan who is, well, there's different races. So he agrees with Jim that there's different races, but uh, we're all the same. We're not, they're, they're not, none is superior or inferior. We're all the same. And we got to be nice to each other. I take the third view. That there's one race. Therefore, there's nothing to transcend. Now, there's always going to be political differences between two people and religious and geographic and cultural and ethnic differences, of course, but not racial. Now, why is it important to have this third category? Why am I making a big deal about this? Why not? Why don't we just all settle on Dan's opinion, right? Dan's, Dan's opinion seems nice. We're all different, but let's get along. That seems good. We're going to be tolerant, especially because we have this fetish for tolerance, right? So why don't we, we just be tolerant of our differences? So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is it's wrong. It's, it's, a, it's a false premise. Why would I base anything I do off of a false premise? Why make life more complicated than it really is? I'll give you an example of, of where this goes awry when you, when you take Dan's conclusion. The other day uh, when we talked about this, we shared the Supreme Court case, Loving v. Virginia. And the judge in Virginia said that God made five different races and he put them in separate parts of the planet. Five different races, put them on different parts of the planet, did not mean for them to breed with each other. And we can't interfere with this plan, which is why it's against the law for interracial marriage. That was 59 years ago. Okay. 59 years ago. That opinion that that judge made in Virginia 59 years ago can only be made if you first start on the false assumption that there are indeed different races. <laughs> you can't come to the conclusion that interracial marriage is outlawed if you know there's only one race because then there's no such thing as interracial marriage because that doesn't even make any sense. Interracial marriage implies that there are two races, at least. This judge said there were five, so did Hitler. Now, we shared that the other day. Let me share a different story. It's around 1900. This is when Southerners really started to get their reputation as uh, backwards and lazy. 
now from the beginning of our country, Northern colonists and Southern colonists were very different and Southerners were always more genteel and all that. And so, but no different than lazy, right? This, 1900 was around, you got the lazy Southerner. And people wondered why, why are people in the South so lazy? Ah, uh, a lot of black people. Mm-hmm. A lot of black people in the South. And as we all know, black people are inferior. I mean, that's what made them such good slaves. But now they're free and they're so lazy. That's what people said. Black people are lazy. That's why people in the South are lazy. But you think, well, hold on, there's a lot of white people in the South too and they're lazy too. Well, slave culture and, and black people are infesting them. Uh, the black race bringing down the white man. And these uh, the white and black people now in the South, they are all good for nothing. They can't even complete a solid day's work. This was the cultural and scientific consensus. Southerners were lazy because of black people. Now, you can only come to that conclusion if you believe that there are two races. Now, you can be like Dan and try all day long to do this whole, oh, yeah, we're different, but oh, we're the same. Let's focus on our similarities. Nope, because if you start with that, someone's going to find differences. And they're going to focus on those differences and they're going to uh, uh, take advantage of those differences. And that's what people did in 1900 with lazy Southerners. Oh, it must be because of black people. They're different. They're inferior. They're lazy. They're infecting the white people with laziness. And the South is now backwards. Thanks a lot, different race. Scientific cultural consensus. Then came along Charles Stiles. He was a zoologist in, uh, in New York. It was 1902. And he was working to help farmers keep their animals healthy. Uh, and he traveled down to the South and he was fascinated by how people in the South were shorter and got exhausted so quickly. He said there were, it was so bad that there were construction projects and Southern men would fall to the ground pushing wheelbarrows after just a few minutes. They would just fall to the ground. So the, the construction company had to bring in workers from Pennsylvania, had to bring in workers from the North to get the job done. And he was like, what the heck is going on with the Southern people? So he did a little research. You know what he discovered? He found the culprit. Hookworm. Tiny worms. Little bitty tiny worms that would go into your heart and then your lungs and then your small intestine. And they would latch into you with their fangs and they'd hang around there for about five years and they would breed and make it get even worse. And if you were a kid, it would suck all the iron out of you and it would stunt your growth. And if you were a woman, it would make you iron deficient, unable to get pregnant. And it would make you exhausted all day long. How'd you get it? Through your feet. Most everyone at that time walked around barefoot, but especially in the South. And it was, it was an odd uh, thing, the hookworm, because not only was this caused by poverty, right? If you were poor, you probably didn't have shoes. So you get, you walk around barefoot, you get hookworm through your feet, but it also caused poverty because once you got it, you were super weak and you were exhausted all the time. And you couldn't work. So the scientist, this uh, styles guy, he made this case and everyone laughed at him. You got scientists, doctors, researchers are like, oh, pff, you're a zoologist. Yeah, you study animals, not humans. Plus we already know what it is that makes people lazy in the South. It's black people. You and your hookworm. Give me a break. This guy was against consensus. I don't know. Maybe 98% of scientists agreed that it was black people, not hookworm. And it took a few years before he even got the attention of John D. Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller at the time was looking for more ways to give away his money. 
So he uh, got in front of Rockefeller. Rockefeller agreed. He started an organization called the Rockefeller Sanitary Commission. This was seven years after Stiles made his initial discovery. Seven years. It took seven years before people believed him. But even then, no one believed him. It, it was just it was just Rockefeller that believed him, right? The scientists and researchers still didn't believe him. So Rockefeller set up these health clinics in every town in the South. People drank a simple solution. It cost a penny and hookworm gone just like that. It cured people so fast. They thought it was a magic potion. They thought these doctors were sorcerers, right? You're exhausted, sick, frail. You drink the solution. I forget what it was. It was like salt and like not, it was like nothing. And you drink it and the hookworm dies. And the next day you're bundle of energy. And you're like, what, how could that 40% of the population in the South gone just like that. So what's the lesson? People thought that laziness was because black people were lazy. Science agreed. It took scientific consensus seven years to catch up to Dr. Stiles. And again, even then, they weren't convinced. It was Rockefeller who was. Now, if you think there are different races, like even Dan did, and as people did back then, then you can see how one could come to the conclusion that one race is inferior and I, of course, am superior. But if that concept, oh, oh therefore, I'm, inf- I'm superior. They're inferior because they're different. And that's just human nature. I'm going to think I'm inferior over anyone else who's different. Uh, and they're lazy uh, black people. Right? That's different races. It's a different race than I am. Right? You can see how you can go down that road. But if that concept never formed, that there's different races, or if we eliminate it today, then you can't come to that conclusion. You can't come to the conclusion that it's because black people are lazy because we're all the same. So then you would search for a different answer. And if you search for a different answer, then doctors and scientists and researchers may have been able to find the real culprit much sooner. But because consensus took over, that was it. This is why it's very important to completely eliminate the concept of different races. Don't even play into the game. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Thanks for being here. At the uh, the risk of beating a dead horse, I, just, I got a lot of pushback on this when I talk about this on my local show. So I just want to I want to make sure we're on the same page. We can be done with it. Just about how stupid races, and and my quest to eradicate it from our culture. So in 1929, if you were Mexican and like if you were in America and you were of Mexican heritage, you were considered white. 1929. Then in 1930. Mexican was put on the census as a distinct race, the Mexican race, which like that's not, that's not even a race. Like even in the, the bad science of race, there were five races and Mexican wasn't one of the races. So, um, so, so 1930 census, Mexican was its own distinct race. Then you had the league of United Latin American citizens which was a Mexican organization, a Mexican-American organization. 
they protested to get Mexican off of the census. And their argument was that they are white and they are American. So it was finally removed and it wasn't put on the census again until 1970. Now, before we tell you why it was put back on, how fascinating is that little moment? Right? So 1929, you're Mexican-American, you're white. 1930, suddenly you're now something different. You're now the Mexican race. And then right after that, they took it back off because Mexicans wanted to be considered white. And a lot of Mexicans are, right? Vincente Fox, we've told this story before. Vincente Fox, the former president of Mexico, has um, uh, his family's from Germany. And his dad was born in Ohio. And their name was Fuchs. So he's a white guy, right? Vincente Fox, the former president of Mexico, is a white guy. And then you remember Tucker Carlson did an interview with Jorge Ramos from Univision. And Tucker's like, you have blue eyes. You're whiter than I am. <laughs> it's like, what are, we, what are we doing here? So Mexicans 70 years ago were like, no, no, we're white. So it was put on again in 1970. Why? Okay, so back in 1930, 40, 50, 60, the idea was that you had to be white to get all the rights of an American. So Mexicans wanted to be, Mexican-Americans wanted to be considered white so that they got all the rights of white people. Make sense? Also, when we won the area that, we, that I live in San Diego from Mexico, we promised at the time that Mexican residents would be treated as full American citizens. So Mexicans... Mexican-Americans wanted to be known as white people. Now, you'd think that would just be the end of it. But why did it change? Why then in the 70s did people want to be known as as non-white, as something different, as Hispanic? Because around that time, it now became more profitable to be a minority. There used to be, in the 30s, a premium on being in the majority, which is why Mexican-Americans were like, oh, we're white. Now there's a premium on being put in the minority. Which is why Spanish are like, oh, we're Hispanic. Same, same people. Same, right? Just like the kids of those people who before were like, I'm white. And now they're like, I'm Hispanic. Why did Elizabeth Warren claim she was Native American? 50 years ago, you wouldn't claim that. Because it'd be less likely for you to get a uh, tenured position at Harvard. But now Elizabeth Warren can claim she's Native American and Harvard brags that she's the only tenured Native American uh, on the Harvard faculty. Right? Because now there's a premium put on being a, a, a minority. Fascinating how, but like, does that make sense? Like how foolish then the whole concept of race is if you can just decree it different like, oh, I'm white. Uh, I mean, Hispanic. In the early 1900s, there were different standards in each state on what it meant to be black, right? If, if one of your parents was black or you were a quarter black, eighth black, the one drop ruler, whatever. So you could, it was, every state was different. So you could drive to different states and have a different race depending on what state you're standing in. So like, clearly it, it's not a thing. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense anymore. It never made sense, but it certainly doesn't make sense anymore. And then you get this argument, one last argument that people make. They'll say, well, hold on, Slater. There's got to be different races because black people, I've gotten this a couple of times, black people are more likely to get sickle cell disease. No. People in Africa are more likely to get malaria because mosquitoes and all the rest. So there became a gene variation over time 
to combat the malaria and that sickle cell. So the benefit of malaria resistance, the sickle cell, outweighed the negative impact of sickle cell disease. So it's not that black people are more likely to get sickle cell disease. It's that people who have an ancestry in that part of the world who happen to be black are more prone to have sickle cell anemia. I don't want to get too deep into it, but I'll put, I will stop here. I'll put a timeout on this conversation. I don't want to beat this dead horse. I just, you can see how when we start on a wrong foundation, how you just get a little bit off, right? A little bit off, a little bit off. Then you're a little further off and you're a little further off. And before you know it, you're on a totally different planet. And you're like, whoa, how did I even get here? Oh, it's because you were off at the very beginning. And the very beginning of this is that there are two different races. There's not, it's just one. Keep that in mind as, uh, as I'm sure, and it's not really a big conversation now, but it always cycles back around race being such a big thing. And think about the people who want race, who want there to be two different races or five different races. They're just different races. Think about the types of people who want that. You have the, the, like the white supremacists. They want there to be different races. And then you have people like Jesse Jackson who profit from the idea of there being different races as well. So if we stop, if we get people to realize that there's only one race, those two people are bankrupt. They're already morally bankrupt. Now we can make them actually bankrupt, like financially bankrupt, because they have nothing else to profit in. And that would be a great, uh, that would be a great victory. 1-888-900-3393. So there you go. That's, 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 we're, done. we're done there. My next crusade, by the way, once I, 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 I polish off this quest of getting everyone to realize there's only one race, my next crusade is that multivitamins are a giant scam. Uh, I'm not going to die on that sword. But uh, eh, worth noting that there's zero evidence that vitamins do anything for anyone. But anyway, listen, I'm not, we'll, I'll just drop that right there. I don't Probably won't even touch that one, actually. Stick with, stick with the important one. You know this wasn't even that long ago, right? These all these super racist things. It wasn't even that long ago. You know what else wasn't? Lobotomies. I want to tell you about those next. This is the craziest thing you've ever heard. We'll do it next. Mike Slater to the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. So, so the idea that a judge 59 years ago said that there are five races, God put them on different planets, planets, excuse me, planets, continents, uh, didn't mean for them to intermingle. Therefore, interracial marriage is illegal in Virginia. That was 59 years ago. That's it. This is this is not ancient history by any means. I got another example of how. It really wasn't that long ago. So we have this reoccurring theme uh, that on the show lately that science, science says, is not an argument. Scientists say that's that's that doesn't that's not an excuse to turn my brain off. The experts are often wrong, as we just talked about with hookworm. Consensus has a terrible track record. 
someone called in Jim. I mentioned Jim the other day. Jim's the guy who thinks there's two races and one is superior than the other. <clears throat> and he said, Slater, you're a historian, not a scientist. Stick to history. Which is such an interesting sentence because I'm not a historian. I'm a history major, but like, whatever. That doesn't make me a historian. And also, just because I don't have a science degree doesn't mean that any of us can't find the truth. Right? So, so he gave me way too much credit on one regard and then not nearly enough on the other. Oh, you're a historian. No, I'm not. You're not a scientist. Well, I kind of am because I search for the truth. And that's part of what science is. But anyway, I'm just, I'm just constantly stunned about how wrong science has always been. Yet still, when someone says scientists say, we turn off our brains. I want to talk about lobotomies. Which, turning off brains, lobotomies didn't mean to do that. But lobotomies are not being performed anymore. But we're going through the same cycle. Again, the details are different, but it's the same thing. I'll explain that. But let me tell you what the, the history of these lobotomies. So it started with, first of all, when do you think lobotomies started? But I would like if you told me about Slater, make up the story of lobotomies. I'd be like, oh geez, I don't know. Uh, lobotomies, ancient Egypt to I don't know, like a 800 BC lobotomy. Like, like that, I'd be like, that's kind of the war, the framework I'd be working in, like 200 BC or 2000 BC or something. Nope, starts with Dr. Walter Freeman, a neurologist in DC in 1936. That was, the, that was the beginning of lobotomies. So he thought that if someone had depression or anxiety or schizophrenia, then he could remove the frontal lobes of the brain and they would be cured of these, uh, these problems. So in 1936, he would drill a hole through your skull, take a knife, and slice through the front part of the brain, disconnecting it to the rest of the brain. Now, I want to be clear, too. When I thought lobotomies, I thought they would take like a square, like a chunk out of your skull, like, I don't know, two inches by one inch or something, even bigger, remove the whole, like, like a plate, the front part of your skull, take it out and like, look at the brain and then cut part of it out. Nope. Little hole, stick a knife in, slice it, take the knife back out. And the brain would still be there. Right. And it would just be disconnected to the rest of your brain. So that's how they started 10 years later. So we're in the forties now he would take an ice pick and a hammer. Literally, the first ice pick was from Dr. Freeman's kitchen drawer. Okay, brace yourself. He would peel back your eyelid, insert the ice pick above your eye into the back of your, um, uh, like the back of your eye, right? And use the hammer to tap it into the brain. Wiggle it around sever the frontal lobe and then pull the ice pick back out. So the ice pick will go in right above your eye into your skull, into your brain, wiggle it around, pull it back out. There's your lobotomy. This was 70 years ago. Okay. That's <laughs> honest. Like I said, ancient Egypt, maybe ancient Rome, maybe nope. 70 years. And he would go from office to office because all I needed was an ice pick and a hammer. He'd go from office to office and hospital to hospital and insane asylum to insane asylum and just 
uh, knock out these lobotomies. He did 20, 30 lobotomies a day. It took just a few minutes each one, right? So then he moved to California and he would do it on people with headaches and misbehaving children. 19 of his patients were under the age of 18. One of them was four. He did this until 1967. 50 years. 50 years ago, we were doing lobotomies with an ice pick and a hammer. The hospital that he was working at made him stop only after someone died after her third lobotomy. Crazy, right? So, why do I bring this up? We're not doing lobotomies anymore. Well, first of all, I hope that point is proven, right? Not that long ago, pretty crazy. Not that long ago, but science says, and embraced by by science. Uh, they, did the, they did lobotomies at the Mayo Clinic. They did it at the VA, which we'll talk about. They did it at, um, oh, what's the other one I'm thinking of? Uh, Johns Hopkins, right? They did like this. The government is like, oh yeah, lobotomies. What? Ice pick through the eye? Now, we're not doing lobotomies, but we're doing something similar. The way we're treating kids with gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is transgenderism, right? Girls who think they're boys, boys who think they're girls. We treat them by giving them hormone-blocking drugs as children, which blocks puberty, prevents puberty, and makes it easier to, to perform surgery on them when they're older. Why do people do this? The same reason they got lobotomies 50 years ago? Desperate? Hopeless? In the 30s, no medicines helped. And people were suffering. And the doctors would say there's a high rate of suicide, so we got to do something. Same thing with transgender kids. We're told, which isn't true, but we're told that there's higher rates of suicide. One therapist, I'm not even getting a therapist, a therapist told parents of a kid with gender dysphoria, your daughter, it was born a boy, it's a son, but wanted to be a girl. Your daughter already knows who she is. So now you have to decide, do you want a happy little girl or a dead little boy? Okay, that's a therapist told that to parents of a kid with gender dysphoria. Okay, you have to give these puberty blocking drugs so you can perform surgery because here's your options, either a happy little girl or your daughter who's really a boy is gonna commit suicide. Happy little girl, dead little boy, that's your choice. Okay, so that's what, when you have desperation, you'll get an ice pick stuck in your eye or you'll give your kid uh, puberty blocking drugs. It's also the power of the press. How, how, how easily people in the media are deceived and therefore how the, easily the rest of the American people are deceived. Dr. Freeman, the lobotomy guy, would have journalists and photographers come and watch him do this. The Washington Star called lobotomy quote, one of the greatest surgical innovations of this generation. The New York Times called it surgery of the soul, declared it history-making. 1941, Saturday Evening Post, a world that once seemed full of misery, cruelty, and hate is now radiant with sunshine and kindness to them, right? So that's the results of someone who had a lobotomy. One photographer took a picture when Dr. Freeman was performing a lobotomy. It scared Freeman, right? Because it was loud. <laughs> like that. Like, scared him. He slipped. The ice pick went too far into the person's brain. They died right there on the table. That did not make it into the article. 
How many articles today celebrate transgender children and how their parents are so brave and all the rest? Yet how many articles talk about the American College of Pediatricians who say that hormone-blocking drugs are child abuse? This is not me. This is not right-wing hate radio. This is the American College of Pediatricians say that this is child abuse. That's their words. None of those articles do that. Just like the article where the person died on the table doing it, getting a lobotomy, that little tidbit of information wasn't put in the article either. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Um, it's, 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 so, so all those points make sense. I can't, I don't, I don't need to reiterate them, right? It's just amazing how we do the same thing for the same reasons, just different details, right? Desperation, media sensation, culture changes. And then eventually we hit a point and everyone goes, Ooh, rut row. That's, that's, we, we went too far. So then we stopped doing lobotomies and I'll tell you the end of lobotomies in a second, how they stopped, but then we just do it again with something different. And then we're going to see the consequences of puberty blocking drugs. And then people will be like, Whoa, what were we thinking? And then we'll do it with something different. And that's just how it always goes. Unless we can control ourselves here and control our desperation, control our hopelessness and, and not get swept up by emotion, not get swept up by the media and pop culture and just think about what is actually true and right and righteous and do the right thing as opposed to the quote unquote, I don't know, trendy, popular, whatever thing you want to, however you want to describe it. one 888 Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network, spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. So the point the point of this segment here is not to talk about gender dysphoria necessarily, just to prove that we do the same thing over and over. We have these same cycles. Um, I do think we'll look back at giving kids puberty blocking drugs and have the same reaction uh, as we do today when we look back at lobotomies that were performed only fifty years ago, sticking an ice pick in someone's eye and swirling it around in their brain. We're like, oh, like. At the time, it was a miracle of science. And today we're like, what? What were we thinking? I think we'll do the same with uh, puberty blocking drugs and gender dysphoria. Uh, it's no different than, why well, I hope, uh, a couple generations from now, people will look back at us and say, how could they allow abortion? How could people so be so apathetic about it? How could they allow abortion? The same way we look back on people from uh, you know, 200 years ago and say, how could they allow slavery? It's the same cycle. It's, and it's not even that we're becoming more sensitive to things. It's literally the same thing, just different details. So slavery, the argument was, well, these humans aren't humans. And with abortion, it's this human isn't a human. It's something different than a human. It's a clump of cells or whatever, right? It's the same thing. It's the same argument. These black people aren't humans. They're slaves. This baby isn't a baby. It's something, Right. And same thing happens with our marriages, right? If you and your wife get in arguments frequently, it's probably the same thing every time. Different details, but it's the same thing. It's the same, right? Over and over and over and over again, whether it's a trust issue 
or a respect issue or selfishness or pride or whatever. It's the same cycle over and over every day, every argument. It's the same thing. Different details, but same thing. To have doctors and hospitals perform these lobotomies, I, I, I think it's the same hysteria. It's the same desperation. It's the same seeking for attention and prominence that drives bad global warming science. And these scientists, right? Attention, prominence, money, fame, all the rest. Hopefully, eventually, people wise up. Dr. Freeman, the lobotomy guy, eventually lost respect. He went to a medical conference around 1965 with, a, he wasn't invited to the medical conference, but he went with a box of Christmas cards that he received from grateful patients and families. And he showed them to everyone. And it's such a sad image, right? Like, look, look, they liked it. They thought it was good. Look, 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 to prove that these lobotomies work. And they paid him no attention. And then he roamed the country in a camper, taking pictures of his former patients. And at this point, it wasn't to reassure other people that these lobotomies worked. It was to reassure himself. In 1967, he did his last two lobotomies. Uh, and he wrote that one patient was doing well and the other died of a brain hemorrhage three days later. Freeman died five years later, 1972, and that's not that long ago. Now, i got two minutes here. I think this is related. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm bouncing around. I think they're all related. The Prime Minister of Denmark has boasted that 90% of babies that have Down syndrome have been aborted. So, you know, they do the test to see if you, if you have Down syndrome. And then of all the babies that are tested positive, 90% of them are aborted. And the Prime Minister of Denmark is happy about this. And they say in 10 years, Denmark will be Down syndrome free. There's an article in Denmark that, that said Down syndrome is headed towards extinction in Denmark. Ooh, uh, there's a big difference between extinction and extermination. Right? Extinction of a disease is like polio, right? It existed and then we treated it and now it's gone. It's extinct. Extermination is if we just killed everyone with polio. That's, that's different. That's extermination. That's different than extinction. And that's what Denmark is doing with babies who have Down syndrome. They're exterminating them. So not to get into a whole thing, but what kind of society do you want to live in? In America, still 67% of Down syndrome babies are aborted very high. But generally as a society, we help people uh, make sure their kids can live a full and happy life. In Denmark, they kill them and then celebrate not having them anymore. Uh, why? A lot of bad science, a lot of bad information, a lot of bad culture, a lot of bad media reports deceiving you all the time, constantly. Be careful. one 888 Coming up next, I want to talk about uh, Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law. I think this is a very, very fascinating aspect of the White House. We'll talk about it next. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio only 
on the Blaze Radio Network. That is America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. So um, let's talk some politics. Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, uh, Ivanka's husband. This guy's a big deal. His family's a big deal. I've heard the, the Kushner family described as, as Jewish royalty in New York City. Uh, Jared's dad, and, and he owned a, a real estate company, among some other things. So Kushner is now leading a team. He's young. He's a young guy. He's 36. He's leading a team inside the White House, viewed as a SWAT team of strategic consultants, staffed by former business executives. Uh, let me quote from Washington Post. Designed to infuse fresh thinking into Washington. Float above the daily political grind. We're going to talk about that coming up. And create a lasting legacy for a president still searching for signature achievements. So, again, he's 36. He thinks like a Silicon Valley startup guy. That's just how, that's how his mind works because he's of that generation. Um, let me quote a little bit here just so we know what we're talking about. Uh, Kushner is positioned in the new office as an offensive team, an aggressive, non-ideological ideas factory capable of attracting top talent from both inside and outside of government and serving as a conduit with the business, philanthropic, and academic communities. We should have excellence in government, Kushner said. The government should be run like a great American company. Our hope is that we can achieve successes and efficiencies for our customers who are the citizens. I love trying to think of, of how government can work like a business, right? So let me read one last thing here. Uh, Kushner's ambitions for the new office are grand. Uh, the team plans to focus his attention on reimagining the VA, modernizing the technology and data infrastructure of every federal department of agency, remodeling workplace training programs, blah, 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 blah. The VA, right? So he can look at the VA, and where politicians would look at it and be like, oh, well, how am I going to get more money to my VA, local, whatever? He'll look at it and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This, this doesn't work at all. We need to completely transform it. And gosh, we know that needs to happen. And we've talked before about, uh, you know, he said he wants to work, about, um, work on modernizing the technology and data infrastructure of every federal department of agency. We, uh, this is my favorite example of government inefficiency and bloat and how the whole thing is so broken. There is a, uh, an abandoned, an old former limestone mine in Pittsburgh that if you go into it now, there's tens of thousands of filing cabinets, rows and rows and rows of filing cabinets as far as the eye can see. This is where the federal government keeps all the retirement records for all their employees. And it's all still today done by hand. The guy who uh, Ronald Reagan appointed to be in charge of this Set, he looked at it and he said, oh, geez, I have to computerize this or else I'm going to get fired. That was 1984, 83, and uh, still today, all done by hand. That's insane. So Kushner's goal is to modernize all that and make government more efficient and therefore hopefully smaller. Let me quote one last thing and then I'll tell you why I'm so excited about this. Under President Barack Obama, Trump's advisors said uh, scornfully that some business leaders privately dismissed their... Uh, let me try to explain this. But this is a weird quote. So business leaders come to the White House today. They meet with President Trump. 
they say, geez, this is way better than when we met with President Obama. The advisors say, excuse me, the, uh, the business leaders who come and meet with Trump's team says that the Obama White House, they called them NATO meetings. No action, talk only. NATO, no action, talk only. In which they were lectured without much follow-up. So you imagine a business executive coming to the White House and they just sit, get sit down, lectured, have no, no real dialogue, no exchange, and no follow-up afterwards. Andrew Laveras, chairman and CEO of Dow Chemical, has had meetings with the previous two administrations and said the environment under Trump is markedly different. After he left a recent meeting of manufacturing chief executives of Trump, Laveras said, quote, rather than entering a vacuum, I'm getting emails from the president's seat, if not every day, then every other day. Here's what we're working on. We need another meeting. Can, you get more, can we get more input on this? One guy, Eric Little, he was the CFO of GM, Microsoft, and International Paper. And now he's on Kushner's team in the White House. He said, we are a part of the White House team, connected with everyone here, but we are not subject to the day-to-day issues. So we can take a more strategic approach to projects. Okay, this is what I really want to talk about now. I quoted something earlier. Um, The Washington Post said uh, that this team, this SWAT team, is designed to infuse fresh thinking into Washington, float above the daily political grind. And here is one of the guys on the team saying, we are in the White House, but we're not subject to the day-to-day issues. That is huge. Robert Greene talks about being a grand strategist. So a strategist is good, right? You don't want to go willy-nilly. So a strategist is good, but they look at the day-to-day stuff. Now, if you look at the day-to-day stuff, you tend to get distracted by the minutia, right? You go battle to battle to battle, and you can look a little uh, like you don't know what you're doing. But a grand strategist looks beyond the battles and looks at the entire war. A grand strategist can maneuver his way through the muck with ease because it's always about the end goal. They always have their eyes on the prize. They always know where they're going. And when you do that, you don't get distracted. And you don't get disappointed by a little setback here or there because you're playing the long game and you know where you're going. So Kushner and his team of these young innovators in the White House, they don't care at all about the healthcare debacle from a couple weeks ago. It doesn't matter to them. They don't care about the latest tweet that Trump sent to Paul Ryan or whatever John McCain said. Or, like, that's, they're not distracted by media cycles, which the White House and people in politics always get, to, they get wrapped up in the day-to-day media cycles. They get wrapped up in the minutiae. They're always distracted. But Kushner and his team, they rise above that muck. They don't care about every little thing that happens. They're focused on the long-term goals. And because of that, they're going to be successful. I predict that most of the reforms that uh, Trump's presidency is known for is going to come from Jared Kushner and this team. Precisely because, well, obviously they're smart, they're successful, they're talented, they work hard, all that. But mostly because they don't get mired down by the day-to-day nonsense that happens in our political world. I want to tell you an example that's coming up next with uh, Alexander the Great, because Alexander the Great was a grand strategist. And you can see, and we'll talk about his life, you can see he didn't get wrapped up with emotion. He didn't get wrapped up by, by the day-to-day, by the daily, by the battle here and there. He kept his eye 
big picture, long-term grand strategy, and that's what you would need to do if you want to be successful. We'll tell his story next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusader. So Alexander the Great had two great influences in his uh, in his childhood. He studied he studied under Aristotle. So growing up, he uh, learned how to control his emotions. So he never got swept up by emotions, never got distracted uh, by emotions, and he could see things clearly as they really were. A skill set that we should all work on. Uh, also, his mom. His mom had visions from uh, as soon as he was born that he was going to take over the known world. And she told him that. And she told him that he was a descendant of Achilles, one of the greatest warriors ever. So from as young as he can remember, he had visions of greatness. So his dad, the king, was killed. And his dad was able to keep together Macedonia, which is an area right above Greece, and all the different areas of Greece, except for Sparta, but that's a different story. But when he was killed... All the areas of Greece that he controlled, they saw this as their way out, right? And they, they started to rebel over uh, the control from Macedonia. So the young Alexander takes over. He's not Alexander the Great yet. He's just Alexander. He was 20. And his advisors didn't trust him, obviously. They didn't think he had what it took. So they told him to go slowly. They gave him advice, go slowly, don't rush. But instead of giving his enemies time to organize against him, he led his army through Greece where very quickly the people begged for forgiveness and begged to be taken back under his control. He was bold right out of the gate. Whenever all of his advisors told him to go slow, be patient, he went right for it. Then when his advisors told him to not do anything more, he decided to attack the Persian empire. The Greeks hated the Persians and vice versa. So he attacked one part of their empire, no problem, and he won. Now, again, his advisors told him two things so far, and he did the opposite of what the advisors told him. Now, because he won, and his advisors didn't think he would, his advisors are saying, well, let's keep going. We got, let's, let's keep marching in. We're going to take over all the Persian Empire. And Alexander the Great, again, not taking their advice, said, nope, not yet. So he went from super aggressive to patient. Never taking his advisor's advice. Advisor's advice. Many advisors. So instead of going uh, right into the empire, he zigzagged from town to town and then went to Egypt. And the Egyptians, they viewed him as a liberator against the Persians. They didn't like the Persians that much. And now he controlled all of their grain, all the Persians' grain, cutting them off from it. So his advisors are like, all right, listen, the Persians have a crazy big Navy and we got to build one to defeat their Navy. And uh, Alexander the Great says, eh, no. And instead he just took over all the port cities and he made the Persian, the, uh, yeah, the Persian Navy useless. Now the Persian towns that he took over, he, he kept all the Persian customs, kept their money, kept everything the same. The only thing he changed were all the things that the people in the town hated about the Persian leaders. Right? So Alexander kept everything the same except for the few things that they didn't like. 
And now, obviously, all the people in these towns loved him. Finally, he decided to march on the main Persian city. And at this point, the Persians had no hope. They had no food from Egypt. They had no Navy support. And all the people in the neighboring towns all preferred Alexander. Why? Because he took his time. He was patient and he got everyone on his side. So a couple lessons. First, when he, when he first started these battles, his strength was in his speed. Then speed was no longer the right tactic. Because if he marched in and won too quickly, then there would be this huge power vacuum, right? So he, so he slowed down, consolidated power. And then when the time was right, went in. And at that point, he already had a bunch of uh, everyone all around loved him. And it was easy to take over. Here's the big story. He, he had a grand strategy. He never reacted to events as they happened. He always kept in mind this grand strategy and the ultimate goal. So his advisors, all they did was get wrapped up in the moment, right? When he first became king, they got emotional and said, oh, don't do anything. Like they got scared. They're fearful. Don't do anything. Stay put, relax. Let's learn. Take time. They were emotional, right? Then when he said, we're going to invade the Persian empire in the beginning, they said, no, don't do that. They're fearful again, emotional. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Then he won. And then they got emotional. But the other side, they're super happy. They're ecstatic. They're like, come on, let's go. And that's when Alexander the Great said, no. Right? He didn't let his ego get in the way yet. Uh, and he said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do it this way. We're going to go slow. We're going to be patient now and do this the right way. So when the time is right, we can strike. Right? He never got wrapped up in emotion. Which one of those two people are you? Are you Alexander the Great, who thinks of the grand strategy? Or are you more like his advisors who get wrapped up in the moment? If you are a, a business owner or you're in any leadership position whatsoever, do you get too wrapped up in the day-to-day? -day? Do you find yourself putting out tiny fires here and, here and there all, all day long? Have you, have you ever had that day where it's just literally just you're putting out fires? And if you do that for too long, you're going to totally lose sight of the ultimate goal. Alexander's advisors, too weak when they needed to be strong, too aggressive when they needed to be patient because they never had the long-term goal in mind. So let's bring this back to, uh, I'll give one more example, coaches. I think the best coaches always have the grand strategy in mind. The best coaches always have the grand strategy. So they're, they're concerned, obviously, about the details, right? I think of a football coach, right? Um, let's do Belichick or any high school coach. Have you ever seen Friday Night Lights? Um, any, any football coach, a good football coach. Of course, they're focusing on, you know, the basics, how to tackle right, discipline, all these things. But it's all for the ultimate goal. And if there's a bad practice or a bad this or a bad this, whatever, they're not going to get distracted from the ultimate goal. They know what that is. That's the grand strategy. And they don't get too emotional. Little thing here, little thing there, here, there. The best coaches I ever had, like no emotion. <laughs> they were like rocks, just stone cold unless the opportunity really warranted it. But they weren't just emotional wrecks running around with their heads cut off all the time. So to bring it back to Trump, the media cycle gets all of us to think from fire to fire to fire to fire to fire, right? Every single day. 
Every single day, there's a new fire to put out. Every single day, there's new breaking news. Every single day, we got to freak out about something. And the media gets everyone in D.C. to freak out. They get uh, even presidents to react to things daily. And when you do that, it's easy to lose sight of the ultimate goal. However, Trump's son-in-law and his SWAT team of business executives looking to transform different broken aspects of government. They're not swayed by tiny fires or day-to-day operations or drama. They're focused on the big picture end goal, rising above the muck of DC to fix the muck of DC. I guarantee you where the white house was, I don't want to say frantic, but consumed by the healthcare bill from a week or so ago. Jared Kushner's team was not, and they were focused on uh, getting, you know, making and thinking about and, and trying to figure out how to enact and propose and what it takes to fix the VA, which is something that can't be fixed in the muck, right? If you're, if you're living in the muck and you're going from fire to fire and, and you're thinking little picture, you'll never fix the VA. You'll fix a little thing here and there. Maybe. Probably screw up 10 other things in the process, but only if you think big picture and grand strategy can you truly fix uh, the VA, for instance. So I predict great success from this team, the Kushner's team. And if he can bring business, I mean, common sense solutions to DC, what a huge achievement that would be. Now, this was part of the appeal of Trump in the first place, right? That he wasn't beholden to anyone. Basically, that's just another way of saying he can rise above the muck. Now, we'll, we'll see how he can do with that. But Kushner and, and the guys that he surrounded himself with, I don't think there's any political affiliation there whatsoever. I think they still have, they still have an ideology. Their ideology is, a, is business, right? Efficient, smooth, effective, high quality. Who's the customer? Who are we serving, right? Like, that's how they think. But it's not ideological in the sense of like, well, who do, we, who's, who's, who do we have to pay favors to? Who are we beholden to? Well, we can't do that because that's an idea from the other side. Or well, They don't think that way. But we don't need any of that anyway. I'm excited about it. Look up, be on the lookout for more things that uh, I don't even know if Trump will give Kushner and his guys the credit for it. Um, but look for some reforms that, that have the markings of people who have grand strategy in mind. I think you'll see some. one 933 I have to apologize about what we're going to talk about next. I uh, totally missed this last week. This, this topic is it's a segment we do every year, but I missed it. So I can't, I can't, we can't do the same segment. I apologize for that. But there's something else I want to share about something that I find uh, incredibly sad. I don't even get angry about it. I, I, do, I get angry at the hypocrisy. But the event itself, I find just, I mourn for it. It's so sad. It was last Saturday, but I'll tell you what it was. Coming up next, Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. So two more segments. I promise I'd do that, but that's a better thing to wrap up the show with. Let me talk about this real quick instead. I'll get back to Earth Hour. We'll wrap up the show with Earth Hour. So Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks. These are the two guys, two of the guys who were behind Brexit. Of course, England leaving the EU. They've been in California recently because they are focusing on Calexit, which I I refuse to call it that. My friend and I, we've been uh, throwing around a couple of their names. And I don't like putting just, it's like, I don't like when people put gate behind every controversy, right? Everything's got to be something gate. Like, come on, give me a break. So now everything's got to be exit. No, no, no. So we're going with Cali Cut. That's our working, that's our working. Someone suggested uh, Calcutta. Right, we're cutting, cal- but that's already a place. And then someone said uh, the California cleavage, which will get a lot of clicks if we called it that, but that's not, I guess we're kind of cleavage, like cleaving the one. It's, that's tricky. I think we're going with Cali Cut, though. I like Cali Cut. So this has been proposed a couple times uh, since 1914, cutting California into separate states. I want to be clear. This is not cutting California off the country. It's not turning California into a separate country, which will never happen. Um, even though you may want that to happen if you live in anywhere other than California. Um, But this is about splitting California into separate states. 1914 was the first time this was proposed. It was proposed in North California and South California. The last election, someone, a billionaire in California, tried to get on the ballot, turning California into six different states, which I think is a really good idea. But this has the best chance of it actually happening. And I think there's a strong desire for this to happen in California, especially with these two guys marketing it because they're going to market Calicut the same way that they marketed Brexit. It's coastal urban elite liberals versus rural conservative Californians. And these guys, their goal is to get this on a statewide ballot in 2018. So this is pretty quick. So this is the PR guy. Nigel Farage is in the was was or is I know was I don't think he's I don't know if he's still in the House of Parliament in England. And Aaron Banks is just a rich guy. And this is Banks. He said it would be portrayed as the Hollywood elite versus the people breaking up the bad government. Seventy eight percent of people in California are unhappy with their government. So I'm all in on this. The only bad part about living in San Diego, San Diego is amazing. The only bad part is it's in California. And if we can eliminate that, that'd be great. I'm as nostalgic as anyone. I yearn for the idea of the old idea of, of the old California because California is a lot like America in that it was an idea. So just like you had the settlers and the colonists traveling across the ocean to settle on the East Coast, America, you had the great pioneers traveling across the unknown to come to California. And there was something powerful about California, something emotional about California. There was something just like, otherworldly about California that doesn't exist anymore. So whether it was freedom, the ability to start a new life, to strike it rich in this land called California, it's almost like mythical land that's gone. You you don't get that in California anymore. More likely you go to Texas if you want to start a new life for yourself, right? But it's not, it's not happening here. So why hang on to it? I think California has been riding the coattails of manifest destiny for 150 years. But it's not, 
why hang on to it? I was, I was talking to a friend about this and he said, well, Slater, a lot of people fought and died for, uh, for California. And it's like, well, not really. Do you know how the, the boundary of Eastern, so look at, imagine a map, right? Look at California. Obviously the West coast is the coast. So it's the boundaries, the coast. Uh, but look at the East coast of California. It's just two straight lines. So it's like, uh, so, so, so what it is, is the Northern boundary of California, right? California and Oregon. It's just straight along the 42nd parallel. So, so, so I should say this. What happened is a bunch of guys got together in Utah. I think it was in Utah. And they said, well, how are we going to draw California? So they decided California was going to be, uh, the Northern border was going to be the 42nd parallel. So just straight line. And then they turned South at the 120th meridian. So that's just, it's just the way the earth's chopped up. So they just went South North. And then boom, south. They went south at the 120 meridian because I don't know, whatever. That's as good a place as any. And then it hit Lake Tahoe. And then they shot southeast until they hit the Colorado River. That's it. Everything in between is just random. There's no there's no rhyme or reason. So like, no, California must look the way it does. Is the idea of California in its geography? Or is it was it in low taxes and all these other... like? innovative like it's a new place to go and start a new life like that's what it was but it's not that anymore so who cares what the boundary of it looks like because maybe east california which would be the coast excuse me west california which would be the coast and east california which would be the more rural inland it's basically it'd be a red state be like oklahoma be like texas right that can reclaim what california was there's no reason this can't happen the dakotas did it the virginia virginia did it why can't california and it should and this is what I mean by Cal- what California used to be. Do you know what the flag of California is? Imagine the California flag. It's a bear. That's because of the bear flag revolt. William Ide, 19, excuse me, 1846. He started this revolt against some Mexican settlers and he issued a proclamation to invite all peaceable and good citizens to establish us in uh, to to assist us in establishing a republican government right a rep- like a republic like america's a republic here's the deal here's what this republic government does shall detect and punish crime shall encourage industry virtue and literature and which shall leave unshackled by fetters like chains commerce agriculture and industry so let's break these down Okay, this is the original California, 1846. This is what California was founded on and why it became California, right? Detect and punish crime. Literally the big debate right now in California is Senate Bill 54, which would make California a sanctuary state and make it illegal for local law enforcement to cooperate with ICE to deport illegal immigrants who have committed other crimes. Okay, so if an illegal immigrant rapes someone, goes to jail, ICE says, we'd like to talk to them, please. It is illegal for any law enforcement in the entire state to communicate with ICE about this local law enforcement, about this illegal immigrant. It is illegal for ICE to go into a jail or a hospital or a school or anywhere to interview a illegal immigrant. Okay, that's the debate that's going on right now. So California was founded on, we're going to detect and punish crime. And now it's like, well, not if you're an illegal immigrant. And then we have all these, we have prison realignment, AB 109, Prop 47. We don't have time to go into all these, but these are all things that reform prisons, 
but certainly don't detect and punish criminals. The second thing of the bear flag revolt, second aspect, shall encourage industry. Highest taxes in the country, most regulations, cap and trade, highest price of utilities, no water. And that's a government caused water shortage. Um, what's the other? Oh, right now the, the uh, governor just the other day proposed raising the gas tax again. Another 12 cents would so be 50 cents a gallon in California. Uh, raising the diesel gas tax even higher. All right, that's business. Right, trucks use that, right? So they're encouraging. Shall encourage virtue and literature. Do we need to talk about our school system in California? Shall leave unshackled by fetters, like a ball and chain, shall leave unshackled commerce, agriculture, and industry. Obviously, that's not California today. I'll do this quickly because if you're not in California, I don't know if this matters, but there's something that the voters of California passed in 1979 called the GAN, G-A-N-N, the GAN spending limit, named after a senator, the GAN spending limit. So what that did in 1979 was say, all right, Sacramento, our capital, here's how much money the government's spending. You can't spend more than that adjusted for inflation every year. This is it. That's the limit. Here's the limit right here. Of course, you can spend more just for inflation, but no, but no more than that, right? A couple of years later, well, you know, we passed a proposition about education spending that you know raised the GAN limit, but it's for the kids. A couple of years after that, we passed another bill that changed how the GAN limit was calculated, which essentially raised the GAN limit. Uh, we passed another bill that said, well, this the money on this, t- if you spend it like this way, it doesn't account to the GAN limit. So when, even with all these weakenings of the GAN spending limit, we've hit it again. So Jerry Brown, our governor, proposed a budget the other day that has billions of dollars off the books to try and stay under the limit. And luckily, the legislative analyst office said, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't, you can't, you can't be off the books spending like that. So now Jerry Brown has to try to figure out some way to get around this GAN spending limit for the fifth time, and they will. Now, this GAN spending limit was chains. They were fetters. They were balls and chains that we put on politicians in Sacramento. But they always find a way to get out of them and then put them back on you, the taxpayer. I have no affinity for... California being looking the exact way it does right now. And I don't know why anyone would. Now I've devil devil the details, right? But California. So you should have West California, which is LA County North all the way to San Francisco. East California is San Diego County, which is the southernmost County. All the other red counties, East and then north all the way to the top. And then if you want, we maybe we can take the coastal Cal- county, which is right up there next to Oregon, too, if you want. And we can sort of do this horseshoe around uh, the blue coastal West California counties. I don't know exactly what it should look like, but why not? Why not? So someone just wrote me a tweet. I missed it. Uh, where would the California divide be? I don't know. If it's a north-south divide, it's not worth it. 
because what's what, what does that do, right? California, you'd have Southern California, which would still be controlled by San Francisco and L.A. So then you just get two blue states, right? And even if the divide was putting L.A. in the southern part and then San Francisco in the northern part, you're still going to get two blue states. It's just going to be run by those two cities. Just like Illinois is a blue, excuse me, Illinois is a red state. Unfortunately, Chicago's in it. Right, so Chicago screws it up. The only two counties that voted for Hillary in all of Illinois were Cook County and the one next to it. That's it. Every other count in Illinois was red. We don't want two states, two Californias, where it's all red except for LA and the other states all red except for San Francisco. Put San Francisco and LA in the same state and then all the red areas around it have its own separate distinct state. It'll be like having a Texas on the West Coast. So it needs to happen. I'm all in. And with Nigel Farage and Aaron Brooks behind it, I think uh, I really, really think there's a good chance this might happen. Because you got the people in the red part of the state who want to get the heck away from L.A. and San Francisco. And then you have people in L.A. and San Francisco who are like, I hate Trump and I hate those red people and I'm out too. I think this gets above uh, 60%. We'll see. one 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater says, I apologize. I forgot about that. I I didn't know it was coming up. No one told me. Last Saturday was Earth Hour. Um, Earth Hour for 60 minutes. Uh, Landmarks all around the world turn off their lights and and cities. And and you're supposed to turn off your lights for an hour as well. So you see these pictures of the Eiffel Tower, the Sydney Opera House, the Empire State State Building, all with the lights turned off. Um. I despise Earth Hour. I, let me, I only got a minute or so here, so let me quote from uh, professor, economics professor Ross McKittrick. He said, I abhor Earth Hour. Abundant, cheap electricity has been the greatest source of human liberation in the 20th century. Every material social advance in the 20th century depended on the proliferation of inexpensive and reliable electricity. Giving women the freedom to work outside the home depended on the availability of electrical appliances that free up time from domestic chores. Getting children out of menial labor and into schools depended on the same thing. Development and provision of modern health care without electricity is absolutely impossible. The expansion of our food supply, the promotion of hygiene and nutrition, dependent on being able to irrigate fields, cook and refrigerate foods, and have a steady indoor supply of hot water. Many of the world's poor suffer brutal environmental conditions in their own homes because of the necessity of cooking over indoor fires that burn twigs and dung. Anyone who wants to see local conditions improve in the third world should realize the importance of access to cheap electricity from fossil fuel-based power-generating stations. After all, that's how the West developed. And the whole mentality around Earth Hour demonizes this electricity. I cannot do that. Instead, I celebrate it and all that it has provided for humanity. Earth Hour celebrates ignorance, poverty, backwardsness, 
By repudiating the greatest engine of liberation, it becomes an hour devoted to anti-humanism. And here's the thing. I got to stop here. Here's the thing I hate about it so much. The people who do it, they turn the lights off and it's so sanctimonious and they think they're so self-righteous. But in the back of their mind, they know that when the hour's up, they can go across the room, turn the light switch back on, and they're back in their modern world. Brought to you entirely by fossil fuels. It's nothing to demonize, but gosh, they're ungrateful. Slater Crusaders, have an awesome week, and we'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.